Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Psych in the City. Uh, I'm your host, Sarah Kelleher. I am really excited to virtually be here this week. I am super stoked about this episode. This I feel like I say this about every episode, but I seriously am excited about this one. I spoke with and interviewed two amazing people who are doing incredible things. Just as a warning, this episode focuses on religious and spiritual trauma and abuse. And we talk about purity culture, we talk about assault, we talk about religion and spirituality and all of those related topics or many of those related topics. And if that is not something you're interested in listening to today, then I would suggest skipping this episode and coming back to it at a later date, if at all. So Kayla and Kendra started the Reclamation Collective, which we'll talk a lot about during the episode. But ultimately, the Reclamation Collective is committed to holding space for folks navigating religious trauma and adverse religious experiences, including themes of religious trauma, deconstruction, deconversion, and spiritual abuse. A lot of these words and ideas were kind of new to me, and I learned a lot, and I feel like Kayla and Kendra did an excellent job of breaking it down for me and kind of making me realize how a lot of these themes and the stuff that we speak about has bled into my own life and worldview without me even realizing it. Kayla Felton is a licensed independent clinical social worker who grew up in Chicagoland suburbs in a faith context called the Plymouth Brethren. While childhood was peaceful and she had a strong sense of safety and security, Kayla felt entirely unprepared for the mental, relational, and spiritual pain that her deconstruction journey inspired in young adulthood. From identifying that her body belongs to her, to grieving the loss of beloved community, Kayla found her greatest support on her reclamation journey to be travel, dance, and therapy. Kayla now works as a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapist in the Twin Cities, while also facilitating support groups through the Reclamation Collective. To find out more about Kayla's psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy work, please visit iit-mn.com. Kendra Snyder is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a national certified counselor, and is a North Dakota native who grew up in the conservative evangelical free church. In high school, she was deeply involved in her local church and attended Bible college to pursue full-time ministry. While pursuing her graduate degree in clinical mental health counseling, Kendra endured a very painful, shaming, and isolating season within her religious community. It was these experiences that were the catalyst for deconstructing dogmatic beliefs and reclaiming her voice, intuition, and whole self. It has been through Kendra's own therapeutic journey, authentic friendships, and creative expression through through music and pottery that she has found the support needed for grief and healing. Kendra offers psychotherapy through her private practice, specializing in religious trauma, spiritual abuse, and supporting those impacted by adverse religious experiences. To find out more, please visit KendraSnyderTherapy.com. Welcome to Psych in the City podcast, where sexual fantasies meet sexual realities. Join me as I learn and unlearn with the help of expert guests and friends, all the weird stuff we've been taught about our sexual and psychological selves. Through exposure, education, and conversation, Psych in the City hopes to reduce stigma around mental health and sexuality. I'm a licensed social worker 
training to become a clinical sex therapist and educator. I love learning about sex, human behavior, and psychology, and believe that having access to education and quality information is a human right. Not to mention, it enables us to make informed choices about the lives we live. This is Psych in the City. So today I'm speaking to Kayla and Kendra from the Reclamation Collective. Hello to Kendra and Kayla. Hi, <laughs> we're excited to be here. Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited. I saw your work on Instagram and, and I've been learning more about kind of religious trauma and, and spiritual trauma. I heard the term from another guest that I had and I've been reading more about it. And, and so today we're kind of going to speak a lot about that because that's the work that you primarily do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you're part of the reclamation collective and can you tell us you know a little bit about who you both are what you do what what the reclamation collective is about who do you serve all that kind of stuff totally um so the reclamation collective has been a twin cities based organization for the last two years um and really we're just an advocacy organization for survivors of religious trauma and or spiritual abuse Um, We've been holding space and support groups for the last year and a half or so. Um, Pre-quarantine days, we had a a handful of retreats, which we hope to invite back in when Mm -hmm. it is safe to do so. Um, And we have really just, it's been really um, ironically kind of encouraging over this last year as we've had to make everything go virtual because we've been able to hold space with folks all over the country and honestly all over the world to be able to connect on these intersections of cultures of origin and coming from just deconstructing from cultures or ideologies or religions of origin um, and also just be encouraged by the beauty and the diversity of how reclamation also shows up for folks. Um, what intersections of identity, what um, what pleasure they're chasing, and also what um, how they're pursuing autonomy. And it's really beautiful to get to see folks um, and get to like hold space, processing through how to reclaim. Right, right. So who? how did this work become important to you like religious trauma and and spiritual abuse and helping folks navigate adverse religious experiences which is the focus of your work am i right with saying that mm-hmm. like how did this become do you both come from religious backgrounds or or how does that relate to things yeah we i think for both kale and i we um, relate deeply on a personal level to religious trauma and just harm within uh, religious and spiritual contexts. Mm. So, you know, I'll speak to my, I'll speak briefly to my story, which um, I grew up in a very fundamentalist, evangelical, conservative faith. And actually, that was kind of my whole life, my whole identity, and, and definitely was pursuing a career actually in ministry. And it was when uh, my husband and I were actively serving in ministry that we experienced some, some of our own series of really traumatic, negative experiences within our former faith community. And so it was that experience, those series of experiences that actually started my personal deconstruction journey, 
because it was the first time where I actually gave myself space to uh, a kind of like question it my own question hold my own experience and allow myself to hold the dichotomy that I was seeing all around me and that I had seen for many 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 years mm. so yeah that was a that was over a decade ago and and you know the process um, is still ongoing for me I'm still deconstructing I'm still reclaiming um, but at the same time I was I was also pursuing my master's in in mental health and when I started to get further into the work of providing, you know, clinical support to people, uh, themes of spiritual abuse, uh, religious trauma, just harm within religion, as well as people questioning and wanting to explore for themselves what they actually believe and, and how that aligns with their values, just started to show up in my office. Mm -hmm. And so... It, it became clear to me through my own work in my own therapeutic process and my professional work that, you know, this is such, an, such a need. There's need for language. There's need for space for people to be held and supported in their process. Um, and Kayla and I met up a few years ago and, and realized that, you know, we both were super, super passionate about creating space for people to explore and develop language and reclaim and um so that's kind of how how i got into it and how uh, the reclamation collective just kind of was birthed when you say fundamentalism what do you mean by that like what is i don't really know what that means or even with an evangelical when people say that what exactly does that look like in terms of faith that's a that's a great question I don't have like an official definition in front of me, but yeah. how I would define it is a rigid binary, ex like very exclusive set of beliefs, values, expectations, and expressions. So fundamentalism, I think is not just in theology, like what we believe about God or what we believe about other people. It's actually in our communication, in our expression, in our understanding of ourselves. So it often relies on exclusion. So I'm either good or bad. I'm either saved or damned to hell, or, you know, I'm a good Christian or I'm a bad Christian. Mm. Um, that's how I would kind of summarize it pretty quickly. So would kind you, of like, these are the fundamental truths and anything that's not that is, is not, is incorrect. Exactly. It's very absolute, mm. very concrete, very like can be very black and white. And it's not necessarily, sorry, it's, it's not necessarily one religion. Like that can exist in any religion. Exactly. Outside of religion also. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really anytime that you believe that you possess truth, you possess mm. absolute truth and it should be absolutely true for everyone. Um, even if people don't hold to the same intersections of belief or values or joy or pleasure, right? Got it. So I think that fundamentalism is more of a culture. It's a thinking style. It's, it's a relational cycle. It's kind of how do we show up in relationship to ourselves and to others? Hmm. It can show up, I think, in places outside of religion as well, which is why we spend a lot of time talking through spiritual abuse and acknowledging that folks who are coming out of what may have been a codependent community previously are also potentially very vulnerable to find themselves in a new codependent community, a community where it's hard to tap into a sense of autonomy. 
And so I think that um, I kind of talk about this as the, like anytime that people find things that work for them on their healing journey, what a celebration. But when you start pushing on other people, for example, have you ever met a fundamentalist yogi? Have you ever met a fundamentalist vegan? Totally. Have you ever right. met, you know, um, a fundamentalist, you know, person who thinks that they know the best way to take medicine. Mm. Um, and so I think that we're spending a lot of time talking about a lot of folks historically, just because we haven't had access to a lot of language. So this is not to shame people for, for being where we're all at on the journey. But um, I do think that there's an element of when people have deconverted from a religious belief, there's kind of like this ideology of I'm safe now. And we like to talk a lot about how that's the deconversion. But if you haven't even started deconstructing, you still could be doing active harm when your fundamentalism shows up in your thinking cycles, in your relational patterns. Mm, I get it. And it can really be, I mean, fundamentalism can be applied to any kind of thing, right? I could be very fundamental in my political beliefs or in my food beliefs or whatever, you know, in my exercise beliefs that this one way is the only way. Exactly. So Kayla, did you have kind of a similar experiences that you were simultaneously navigating your own spirituality while kind of seeing the harms that were being done? Is that how you came to the work as well? Yeah, definitely. I also grew up in a fundamentalist culture um, called the Plymouth Brethren, and mm -hmm. it's theologically pretty similar to any other evangelical ideology. Um, okay. But yeah, I actually... I was deconstructing for easily, I mean, I had started my deconstruction journey in college and undergrad, and there were still many years I still identified as a Christian, but it just took me like seven to 10 years to be able to acknowledge to myself and acknowledge to others, yeah, this is no longer an intersection of my identity. Mm. Um, but I definitely... Yeah, I definitely feel like it's for both Kendra and I, it's both a personal journey that's brought us to this passion and to this work. And it's also a professional journey of just kind of who we found ourselves in communication with, in relationship with personally. And then also hmm. who are the folks we found ourselves holding space for and with professionally. I have another personal question. It's okay if you don't want it, but was there a moment, you know, prior to, I guess the term is deconstruct when you started to deconstruct kind of these ideas that you were told and believed growing up did they always feel okay to you and then there was a moment where all of a sudden it was kind of like actually I don't know if this is right or this doesn't feel right anymore or was it kind of a slow like what is your experience with that do you find that the people that you work with that it's kind of like an aha moment or if it's kind of a slow transition of like wait I thought I was down with this, but I, but I actually am not. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of holding space is, is being able to tap into honoring your inner child where they were intuitive AF. <laughs> and that's where I've been able to find so much healing in my inner child work is being able to honor like, no, little Kayla felt really awkward evangelizing. Mm. Like childhood Kayla knew that something didn't feel right in the relationships that I had with people when I would go on mission trips or when I was volunteering and when I didn't speak other people's language, you know? Um, mm. And there was elements that I think along the way just felt, this is not how I want to show up in relationship. Mm. Um, so I do think that like my deconstruction in that sense started very young. 
um, because I was having these intuitive nudges that did challenge the indoctrinated messages that I was marinated in. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think too that it, you know, I, I relate similarly to Kayla personally, but I would say it, it really varies. Some people, it is a, a really big aha moment and other people it's a really slow, not really slow, but it can be a slow process of like, of, of kind of these questions or, or inconsistencies or dichotomies just bubbling up over time. I would say for me, I can look back now that I have language and the space and the support from people that I love to say, I was questioning, I was deconstructing way before I ever even was aware of it. Right. But at that time, anytime like something would bubble up like that, I would pretty much instantaneously go into shame and self-hatred mm. because that's what the system requires for people to basically maintain good standing or to be faithful. You know, it's, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. If I hate myself and the church tells me like what I should think and feel and believe, I, I really have a, a lot of people, myself included, have a really hard time stepping outside of that to even explore, to even question. Mm. So I was doing it, but I never would have told you that then. I would have been sinning or doubting or not, you know, trusting God. Mm, so all the language was kind of more in the framework of like, you're pulling away, not necessarily exploring for yourself. So mm -hmm. is that kind of how the Reclamation Collective got started? Were you, were, were both of you in communities where people were kind of doing similar work of like deconstructing and then you just saw a need for people to have some space to be able to do this as a group with other people with similar experiences? Yeah, it actually came about pretty organically in that it was me and two of my good friends and and we just decided to have a retreat, um, to facilitate a retreat, the three of us. This was mm -hmm. before we were the Reclamation Collective. Um, um, but we had this retreat and we opened it up and we had, I, I think about 10 or so folks join us for a weekend of just these facilitating conversations around processing through deconstructing purity culture, processing through and deconstructing just kind of like deconstruction. Um, and people just sharing their deconstruction narratives or their mm. religious trauma narratives and just the catharsis and also the connection that was that just took place there. Um, we got really incredible feedback and I just was like, I really want to take this a more therapeutic direction, a more clinical direction. And so it was beautiful that the following summer is when Kendra and I connected and met. And I was like, I really would love to be able to hold this space in a more clinical or at least more therapeutic, um, intentional, I'll say. I wanted to just do it more intentionally to right. be able to continue holding this space and make sure that I also was collaborating with other therapists who were doing this work and to be honest I it did take us about a year or so to really develop quite a few college colleagues um that we are now in pretty consistent collaboration consultation communication with yeah and just so the idea of deconstruction what what is that? You know, when we're talking about that word, like, what does it mean? This is all very new to me. Like, I feel like I thought I grew up religious, but it wasn't the same level. 
it, I, I don't think it was, um, I definitely was marinated in it, but not with the same fundamentalism as, as you know, we're talking about here. So what does like deconstruction mean? Does it mean kind of breaking down these beliefs that we were, that were really put onto us? Yeah, we, at, at the Reclamation Collective, we, we use the definition that deconstruction is the process of evaluating and mm -hmm. altering one's previously held beliefs, lifestyles, relationship, or worldview. Mm. And one of the things that, you know, I think Kayla's already spoken to already, that's very important for us as um, the collective is we actually try to distinguish between deconstruction and another term called deconversion, which uh, deconversion is basically the process of releasing or no longer claiming one's previously held religious beliefs or identity. Mm. And this is an important distinction because deconstruction is a long process. I would even say lifelong process. Right. And it doesn't have to result in deconversion. So people, there's this whole spectrum mm. of where people are at when they start and where they quote unquote end up and what their process looks like. And we create space and are very passionate about that not needing to require deconversion. That is up to the individual person if they want to deconstruct harmful beliefs and then reclaim within a spiritual practice or faith identity. Mm. A lot of people, it does end up being um, a, a separation of some sort from a former faith identity. It doesn't always like last that, that way, but you know, we are creating space for that whole spectrum of where people land and where they want to be. Right. I love that. I really like that a lot. So, so the goal necessarily isn't isn't okay you have to reject all spiritual or religious beliefs by the end that's the goal there is no goal it's how whatever you want to separate from or whatever you want to reclaim is your own to do yeah exactly and i think that's a really important piece when holding yeah. space with and for folks who are coming out of communities where they haven't had access certainly not safety when accessing autonomy mm. and so i think that's a really important piece is that when we hold space and support group context we make it very clear, like unless you are specifically asking for insight or advice or guidance, we're not, we're only here to process our own individual journeys. And also what we all are here to reclaim is different. And we're not going to tell you what to reclaim. Mm. And I would even say as a therapist, that's a piece that I have to take into mind also when I'm holding space for religious trauma and spiritual abuse survivors is that sometimes when I meet folks, especially people who are newer to the therapeutic relationship to a therapeutic relationship, I do sometimes have folks come to me, I think seeking guidance, seeking direction. And I have to be really clear on the front end that that's not how I hold space. I'm not mm. here to tell you what to do. Um, I'm not a pastor. And also it, that's pretty problematic that we look to pastors for that kind of intimate insight and guidance on what we should do with our money, with our bodies, with our relationships, with our expression. Right, right. I imagine it must be, I mean, I'm a therapist as well. And, and, it, and I imagine, you know, kind of, during the process of your own unlearning of the religious or spiritual tendencies that no longer resonate for you, that that probably comes up a lot when you hear or sitting across from someone that is navigating that for themselves. Is it hard to kind of dif like differentiate at times? Like, okay, is this, 
am I actually judging this or is it like my religion judging this? Does that make sense? Like, is it hard to kind of decipher? Like, I mean, cause it sounds like you've done, you both have done a ton of work on this for yourself individually, but I imagine it still comes up a lot for you in the work that you do. I mean, same thing for me in other areas. Like, you know, it's like I had an eating disorder and when I see clients, you know, that are struggling with similar stuff, I'm like, it kind of brings me that space again of like, wow, is this my own judgments on them? Or is it, where is this coming from? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I appreciate that. I think that's true for just us as therapists in general. in general. Yeah. Is, you know, the need for us to continue to do our own work yeah. and, and awareness around transference and counter-transference. Mm. But I think the, this, the line that we're trying to walk is um, one of, of essentially not, not knowing and helping people come into their own knowing. Right. And so yeah, I think just supporting people's process, however that looks without any expectation or judgment. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, there are times where I think things are particularly, maybe they touch points of our story that are, yeah. are difficult or hard to hold, or um, just when we're in the process of holding someone's trauma narrative, it can just be a lot to hold in those spaces. Yeah. Um, but but I think the key is, can, can you hold it without judgment, without expectation, without um, an outcome until that person says, this is what I want the outcome to be. This is what I want for myself. Um, yeah. Right, right. So what is religious trauma, spiritual abuse? Is there a difference? How do we define this stuff? I mean, is there, I, I imagine there's not one definition for it all, but like, what is kind of, when we mention, well, for when we talk with that language, what does it mean? What does that mean? Yeah. Well, we kind of actually, we have an umbrella term that we have actually developed with the Religious Trauma Institute, and that's just adverse religious experiences. Mm. Um, and that's kind of, a, we have the intention kind of when we developed that phrase was really just to be able to hold space and welcome in folks, whether or not they are yet comfortable with, or if the word trauma really applies, mm. we can validate that trauma is a physiological response. And so we know that not everyone has the same physiological response to the same event. Mm -hmm. So for example, me and my two siblings all grew up in the same home in the same culture, arguably like had a lot of very overlapping uh, experiences within our, our, our religious context. And we all had very different times along the way where I think we did show up in trauma response and, you know, overwhelm of our nervous systems. And so I think that we also want to just validate that not everybody who had an adverse religious experience necessarily has trauma, mm. um, but it doesn't mean that 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 memory, that experience doesn't deserve to be processed or held or dealt with, or even just considered how did this inform a narrative that I've been living in moving forward? Totally. Um, and so, and then with spiritual abuse, it's a little bit of a different conversation because we have to validate that spiritual abuse can take place in totally non-religious context as well. Um, and so I'm just going to read that definition off because we define spiritual abuse as the conscious or unconscious use of power to direct, control, or manipulate another's body, thoughts, emotions, actions, capacity for choice, freedom, or autonomy of self within a spiritual or religious context. Mm. And the, really the key piece there that we just really have to hold a lot of space for in honoring survivor narratives is that this can be conscious or unconscious. 
so often abuse is unconscious and so often abuse takes place in relationship where there is a sense of love. There is certainly a deep sense of trust. And that unfortunately is where I think the spiritual power dynamics show up is when you've trusted someone who perhaps is not trustworthy or perhaps has not earned it. You may be trusting them because they're a therapist, because they're a teacher, because they're an older person, an elder in your community. Are we projecting trust onto people and thus giving them spiritual power and authority in our lives? Was it hard initially to acknowledge and take a step back from maybe these fundamentalist communities like was that did that cause a lot of tension and was it I mean I imagine there was a lot of in validation going on of like what's going on with you yeah I mean (laughs) definitely (laughs) I think you know for myself my period of leaving the church was was fairly gradual Mm. like you know because there was this really traumatic experience I could kind of blame it on like, I, you know, I'm taking a break, but then, then in all reality, it was like, you know, years upon years upon years. And so me being more vocal and obviously working, um, in my, my clinical work and, and my work with Reclamation Collective has made it more vocal and more apparent, mm. but I would say the other piece too, that I was not at all prepared for is that I, I started to find myself in other abusive fundamentalist communities. One was a therapeutic space. Another was just um, like another community space. So because I, I was actively deconstructing and simultaneously looking for places of belonging and connection and community, I at times, you know, found myself in very similar dynamics because it was what I knew. It's what felt safe. It was the way I knew how to operate in the world. Um, And so that, I mean, it was kind of like third time's a charm for me. Like the third time this happened, I was like, shit, this is what it is. Hey, I'm doing it again. (laughs) I keep doing it. And, you know, I think, I think I just, it's something I'm very aware of. And Mm. I also have a propensity towards um, because I was raised and born and bred in that environment. It's like, has informed my DNA. Right. And where belonging was so important that that's still probably, it, I mean, it feels good to belong for everybody regardless of, yeah. Does that come up a lot for people where it kind of, they find themselves in like various communities that kind of can have these fundamentalist beliefs. I mean, I love what we first spoke about in terms of like the fundamental yogi and it's like, okay, you know, it's like, there's not one way to do anything. Um, Yeah. So that was maybe a part that you weren't prepared for that you kind of thought, okay, I'm done with this, but then it showed up in different ways. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to speak to that Kayla? Well, I think I can just speak to like codependency as a culture, codependency as a relational dynamic. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Using codependent as like an identifier of like that person's codependent. Mm. I'm like, well, actually codependency is how relationship was modeled for me. I never had a framework for boundaries of where I end and another person begins, especially if that person holds a lot of power or respect within my community. And certainly like where my needs end and the community's needs begin right Right. kind of like 
I really didn't have a strong sense of autonomy, a strong sense of identity. If you asked me who I was for the first two decades of my life, I would have said I like my name and then I would be like, and I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God. That was who I was. Um, and so my identity was so caught up with the community I was also born and raised in, but my parents were both born and raised in also. Um, and so. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so was there, I'm sorry, I feel like we're not keeping on the outline at all, but I just have so many more questions. Um, so when, when you both were navigating this, um, did you find a lot of people maybe that you grew up with? Did it feel scary to like have initial conversations of like, are you, do you feel like this is weird now? Or like, because I imagine the reaction is really scary of like, are they seeing this too? Or like, are they, so like that must've been, I mean, really scary. I think I spent a lot of time actually hiding. Like I would, I I distinctly remember like some of the first conversations I had with some of my friends. Mm. It was like testing the water. Like, Hey, I don't, you know, I, I think that one of them was like, what do you, what do you all think about like same sex marriages? Like, I remember testing the water with like pieces of theology Mm. or do you still believe in hell? And, um, wanting to see like, can people actually hold space for me questioning and exploring? Mm. And a lot of times that was met with like, you know, I'm really concerned about you. You are straying too far from God. Don't throw, don't throw Jesus out with, you know, what pain people have caused you. So very Mm. shaming, very belittling comments. And I think that's a lot of people's experience is it's, it is a foundational, like literally every part of you can shift and mold and move And so this process can look like a very slow, long-term unveiling and unfolding. And and there's a lot of terror that comes with it, at least for me, because I was was not only breaking down my my understanding of myself and the world, but I was risking every single relationship I had in my entire life. Right. And I would say the, for me, the first few years of deconstructing and, and as I was nearing deconversion, really, I had quite a bit of separation, just geographical separation from my culture of origin, from my community. And it was not so super hard for me to kind of be able to just still like go to a different church and still like not, I kind of got to choose on my terms, how and when I shared about who I was. And so there was also years where I just was like, I don't show up authentically as me when I go home, when I see people from my culture of origin. I will say 2016 happened and all of a sudden I had a lot of people, peers and and folks younger than me from my culture of origin, from my community, reaching out to me and saying like, okay, yes, we see this. And, or being like, have you seen this coming? I'm referring to like Trump and like the, just the fervent kind of like jumping on the jump bag, the Trump bandwagon that I think happened in a lot of fundamentalist and historically evangelical spaces. Mm. I do think that surprised some of my peers and, and myself as well. Um, when people said like, did you see this coming? You must have seen this because you've known for years that this space was toxic and racist. And I was like, I did know that. I also will say 
part of what I think felt like such a betrayal for so many people in, in my generation from my community mm. that we really thought our families, our parents, our communities, our faith leaders would have done better. I think I genuinely thought that they would have done better. And I also really still do feel like so much of my values, my love towards my neighbor, my love towards um, my love and my hope for my hope for peace, honestly, was rooted in how I was in some of the values I believe I was raised with. So I think it was really bewildering for a lot of people from my community in 2016 when they realized there was this shift or at least this unveiling of what is some of this culture actually rooted in? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it makes so much sense. And I feel like that can happen even um, separate from, from evangelical cultures in the sense of like, when, it, when an event like that happens or, or, or when something so blatant happens and people are supporting it in a way that was unexpected, I mean, I think it, it cuts a little deeper in the sense of like, okay, I knew this was bad or problematic or toxic or whatever the language you want to use but then it's like wow this is even deeper than you know we could I could have predicted or thought um yeah so I kind of want to talk about when what could an adverse religious experience look like for some you know like when we talk about adverse religious experiences what could that what would an example be or a few examples of like would that be just expressing you know a different belief and being completely shamed for it? Or how does that, you know, what does that look like? I, yeah, I think that's a great example. Um, and, and like Kayla was mentioning, everyone's reaction to an adverse religious experience is, is going to be very based on, you know, their history, right. um, you know, whether or not it manifests as trauma for them in their physical body. I mean, I think this could be really overt, like specific things like, now of course I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> for me, one of the most prominent ones is that over two plus decades, like two, 25 years of my life, I was told I can't trust myself. I can't trust my emotions. I'm bad inherently. Like those were overt messages told to me and it and it created this narrative that has had dramatically shifted my own understanding of myself my intuition my creative wow. expression yeah. so I I consider that actually very traumatic for myself but it also is a just an adverse negative experience um, that over time had really profound tremendous impacts right um, yeah is that because the belief was like, if left to our own devices, humans are, you know, unsavory beings or like, was that kind of the message that was being touted? Inherently sinful. Just mm, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Literally. Yeah. Literally born. Like if we're given the chance, we're going to do, we're going to do the sense. Not even, I would even say more than that. Like you are fundamentally at your core flawed and evil. Like wow. yeah. your heart is and deceitful. Only a like white savior could actually come in and save you from yourself, from your own. Um, yeah. So yes. I imagine a lot of the, 
the reclamation or the reclaiming process involves like learning to trust yourself again, or just learning that like, okay, I'm not this, I can be trusted. I am trustful. I am, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And you talked about, I wanted to talk about um, the language component before, because you both were saying that you know, when you were questioning, there wasn't really language to put to those experiences. Is that kind of part of the work of your collective as well to like give names to those experiences where maybe the names that were given were more from like a shame perspective or framework? Yeah, in just about every support group we facilitate, there's at least one, if not two weeks dedicated to just sharing your narrative because there's so much value in like putting language intentionally to your narrative, but then Mm. also hearing it externalized, hearing other people share. We build language together. And then we do say like, hey, when we're talking about deconstruction, here's what we mean by it. When we talk about religious trauma, here's what we mean by it. When we talk about abuse and we talk about power dynamics, here's what we mean by that. Mm. Because I do think that unfortunately language itself has been used also to exploit, to indoctrinate, right? Right. And so we have to be really clear that it's okay for us to all have diversity of thought, diversity of opinions, different spiritual expressions, different sexual expressions, different gender expressions. That's totally cool, but we should make sure that we all kind of know what the other person means and intends when they use the words that they use. Um, right. And then, so there's a piece of building language. And then um, I feel like kind of what you're touching on with that is the language that is used in high control, high demand religious and spiritual places mm. is oftentimes centered on self-hatred and shame. So you, you had actually pointed it out earlier, Sarah, when you're like, you know, the, the language you were using about questioning was like, oh, you're falling away. That's a, that's a perfect example. Mm. Like all of the language that is perpetuated and shared and accepted in these high control spaces is one that is shame or you're doing it wrong. So not only are we intentional about laying out what we mean by terms, but we're also trying to infuse just open, curious, non-judgmental language into the process because most people have only thought about themselves in these like super, super self-shaming, self-hatred based internal language and external language. I actually think it is a tool of mind control, of manipulation, of keeping people stuck. Because if I'm never allowed to think outside of this rigid fundamentalist box, then I don't even know what else is out there. Right, then I can't even think about it. Exactly. I wanna talk about purity culture. This has become, I think, more of a term that I've been seeing online, which I think is great, Um, but I kind of wanna break it down So what is purity culture and how does it impact our lives? And yeah, I know that's a large, large question, but in terms of the work that you both do, you know, what do we mean or what, what do we, what do people mean when they say like purity culture or, or at least what it means to you, I guess. (laughs) I would say that to me, purity culture is, It's a belief system that is perpetuated in our culture as an American white, you know, American fundamentalist culture and particularly in the church that 
has a set standard of right and wrong around sexual expression and sexual intimacy and just intimacy in general. And I would say it has its roots in um, the patriarchy and in white supremacy and in silencing and oppressing women. Um, but overall, I think it's a set of rules used to dictate whether or not someone is good or pure based on how they present their body, how they interact with other genders, how they express their sexuality. Um, it's based off this idea that like, there's a certain level of, of attaining pureness or, or wholeness mm. that is seen as needed or holy or right to be able to first and foremost to have a good relationship with God, but then to like be a good partner. So I, a lot of this is really centered around women and women occupying purity to right. then present to their partner, right. especially if they're, if they have a penis. Um, and, but you know, it's so pervasive, like this idea, but I think it's, yeah, a set of rules that kind of dictate that. If someone doesn't necessarily even identify as religious, does does purity culture, do you feel like it impacts everybody? Well, I do think that purity culture, honestly, is just another word for rape culture. I So I do think that purity culture has directly informed what we now know in mainstream culture totally. to be rape culture. It basically just upholds predators and defends particularly mm. predators who are protected by the patriarchy, um, who are protected by supremacy, um, who are, and it also silences, shames survivors. Um, and it really also like harms people who do come forward and share their narrative. Right. Um, and so we know that these are like systems, these are institutions founded on silencing survivors. Right. And, and purity culture, what, whether we identify as a certain denomination or not, it's, it's so it's, it's a global, mm -hmm. it's a global phenomenon. Yeah. I don't know if you can speak to this. I put it on the outline, but about, um, like, how did, how did we get here in terms of the emphasis and dominance of religion in society? And, and, I don't really know what I mean by that, but like, you know, I think religion has prevailed in, all, you know, globally. And um, I don't know, especially in terms of like fundamentalism, uh, religion or spiritual practices, like, like, are they, are they pretty common? Like that, is that a pretty common, I mean, are they prevalent? Like, it, I, I don't know if you can answer that. I guess one consideration I have is right. just that I feel like so often spiritual spirituality itself can be weaponized to fuel supremacy a sense of supremacy mm. we are not just talking about white supremacy we're talking about any intersection of identity or belief that you believe you possess truth 
and it is absolutely true for everyone else. Mm. It is the supreme identity. It is the supreme expression. It is the supreme, and it should also reign supreme. So this is where we get the political connection, right? Where, because I believe that I have an intersection of supreme knowledge, supreme enlightenment, supreme healing, supreme morality, it should reign supreme over everyone, even if they don't also hold that same belief, that same value, mm. that same ideology. Right. I mean, I, I think that's a piece, I 100% agree. And I think that's a really key component in American white evangelicalism is, right. you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's some good writing about this, of how, you know, basically American theology was used to promote and justify slavery and oppression and and it's just like mm. ballooned out of that yeah yeah I mean it's it's like you talk about one thing and then it's tied to so many other things related to our history especially American history in terms of I mean you're right in turn I like the supreme the supremacy language of like any belief that, that any belief that I believe is supreme or that I am better than someone for holding, I then creates this power dynamic of just an ultimately violent power dynamic of like, I am more worthy because of this belief and you're less educated, less something for not holding it. And then it creates this separation. How can someone know if their religion or spirituality is or becoming abusive? Like, like, is that some of the stuff you talk about in your groups? Do some people come in and like are kind of questioning, like, I don't know, I don't know what I feel, you know, especially maybe after a particular traumatic experience or after, you know, something that comes up that maybe was very different than their, their, you know, previous experiences. Like how do, how does someone begin to navigate what it looks like? I imagine it's very personal, Mm -hmm. but I mean, that's definitely one of the primary questions we sit with in the spiritual abuse support groups that we facilitate. And we really act, we actually have a spiritual power inventory tool. You can find it on our social media. Oh, cool. Um, I'll link it. And it's basically just like a handful of questions. I'm actually going to pull it up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a spiritual power inventory. Um, Mm. And it's really just to be able to assess all of the relationships in your life where there is trust which is probably to an extent, every relationship mm. in your life yeah. to take inventory of the trust and whether or not folks have earned it. Um, and so we ask questions like, who do you trust? And then if any of those individuals were to interact with you in a way that felt violating, manipulative or abusive, would there be a way to get out of that relationship? Wow. Yeah. So then we kind of go through, like, is there a system of accountability? And let's be real. And a lot of, a lot of these spiritual power or religious, you know, these religious organ like contexts, there's not a ton of systems of accountability. Um, And so, and especially because when we're talking about stuff like within religion, there's so many different denominations within each religion, right? There's so many religions. And then you add so many different like sex and denomination within that, that there really isn't just like an overarching realm of accountability. Um, And every, you know, sector denomination has the potential to say like well we have direct pathway to god so god is our accountability god also gives us the right to do what we do the way that we do it Mm. and if we are told that we can't do what we want to do the way we do it then we're being persecuted i think a big piece to add to that too is is 
I think one thing somebody could, in addition to the spiritual power inventory, ask themselves is when I stop and kind of sit with some of these things, is there any part of my experience or my body or sensation that I don't like or doesn't feel comfortable? Even if it's like I have, you know, this, this weird feeling in my tummy, but I can't label it. Just, you know, sitting with that and noting it, that there's some level of incongruence there, even if you aren't totally aware of what it is. Um, that's not, you know, always going to say that this is, you know, an abusive situation, but right. that's part of creating that space for yourself to determine, do I want to be a part of this space? Is this harming me? Is this abusing me? Is this manipulating me? Is we have to start by tapping into our body's sense of what is actually safe and not safe. When for most people that has been the opposite, opposite experience of their relationship with their body. Right. When they're being told, don't trust yourself. You've, you can't trust any part of that. Exactly. Mm, wow. So I met, there's a ton of just like learning and like regaining autonomy within our minds and bodies. Mm-hmm. I really liked this post. Um, when you, when on your Instagram, you spoke about what is a cult versus culture. And I just want to speak to that a little bit. Um, I mean, I want you both to speak to it, <laughs> um, but, but what is, you know, I feel like learning about cults is such like a social phenomenon, you know, like there's a thousand documentaries on Netflix about cults and, and, and all this kind of stuff, you know, and so what is a cult versus culture or versus, you know, something that is not problematic or is that problem, you know, like, what do you, what did you mean by that? <laughs> sure. Well, I think, you know, when, when that post was created, um, we, we did define kind of the difference in culture and, and cults, but, um, so I'll just read the definition of a cult that we, that we kind of came up with is a group of people with a religious philosophical or other identity, sometimes viewed as a, viewed as a sect or subgroup. Well, Cults are generally seen as existing on the margins of society. They can be found in any space, regardless of size or societal acceptance. Mm. A cult is any community that is exploitative and or abusive towards its own members. So our, our hope with that is you're exactly right, Sarah. Like there's a, there's a lot of interest culturally around cults and how they start and kind of their extremism. And we wanted to highlight that, like, there's a lot of cults, if we're using the term of, like, exploitative and, um, you know, abusive towards its members that exist in everyday society that are down the street that we don't have a documentary about. Um, And I would even say that many mainstream practices fit into this fit into this category so we wanted to kind of bring it from like it's not these things on the you know ancillary like on the on the margins yes those are but it also is deeply embedded into our culture yeah I mean even soul cycle I I mean I have done soul cycle but like people joke that it's it it's this it's this experience it's this thing when you go in and it and I felt it when I walked in I'm like wow like maybe I should take more soul cycle like it's all like you know it kind of um so I really like the the analogy of like cults are not something that are way over there but it's something that is that is ingrained in the culture that we live in in terms of like these are you know these things are the best yeah yeah 
when we talk about, I feel like trauma informed and being a trauma informed clinician or therapist or mental health provider has become kind of like a buzzword almost. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk about what it means to be trauma informed clinician as it relates to spiritual and religious abuse or trauma. Like how does, what does that look like? Like, um, or, or is that, how do we, how does that come into practice? Yeah. One thought, I mean, I know I mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but I think when it comes to being a trauma informed and holding trauma informed space for people who are coming out of high control, um, codependent communities and cultures, I think it's really important to really honor autonomy and honor boundaries and invite boundaries into the therapeutic relationship. Mm. Um, I think it's really important to be able to really, um, really push back when people are wanting you to like give them a guidance of like what to do with their lives, with their money, with their relationships, with their Mm -hmm. body, their expressions. Um, and really be aware that that is not actually for us to like say what someone should do and where they're going to access pleasure, where they're going to access intersections of identity, where they're going to access autonomy. Mm. It's literally different for every person. Right. Um, and so I, I think that. Yeah, I just think that like really prioritizing autonomy is what has to happen in any therapeutic relationship where you are deconstructing religious trauma or, uh, well, processing religious trauma or identifying spiritual abuse. Totally. And I think it's kind of what we spoke to before about how it's easy if that was so deeply ingrained in you of like a sense of like community or reliance on someone else that that therapeutic relationship can also become kind of problematic if you're still looking for someone to lean on in a way that is okay just tell me what to do tell me how to seek tell me how to find and it's like that's also we want to I guess deconstruct all of that or or at least that reliance on anyone other than self I guess yeah and another piece that we talk often about is the emphasis that they're they're really um, there's a, there's a high need for reconnection to the body. So someone being trauma-informed also having specific training in supporting people in processing traumatic experiences, traumatic narratives, um, you know, and, and I really value body-based work when it comes to working with religious trauma, because most people have had a, an extreme cutoff literally from their neck down right. from their body. And so that is a big part of, of supporting people in this process of deconstruction and reformation is how do we help them get reconnected to their body in ways that feel safe to them, mm. that feel like it's honoring, it honors their autonomy and intuition. Um, so that that's, that's something we prioritize is you know, especially with clinicians that are on our directory, have you had trauma training? Um, Mm. And we really, we really value body-based specific modalities. Um, I would say another piece too, that I think is connected to being a trauma-informed clinician in regards to this topic is, I I think it's really related to what Kayla was saying, being very conscious of not perpetuating further fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. So there's language out there around like, basically being fundamentalist about uh, deconstructing from religion. (laughs) Like the only way to get there is like, you have to be a hardcore 
all the way to one side atheist. Totally. And I, whenever we occupy a space like that, um, we're actually most likely replicating the same things that this client has endured and is so intimately connected with. And it's, it's another place where we are potentially really abusing our power and then playing into someone re-experiencing trauma. Such a good point. It's so true. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's such an important, that's such an important piece because I think, I don't know, when I first started being a therapist, I was like, okay, I have to, you know, I, I, I felt like I, I wanted to believe you know, I think I have this like overhelping tendency where I'm like, okay, like we have to get you, you know, like we're going to save you and, and, and kind of this saviorism aspect. And, and then slowly it's like, no, I am a witness to this person's journey, whatever that looks like. And it's, it has nothing to do with mine. And I think constant reminding myself of that is enables me to better hold space for someone because it's like, this has nothing to do, you know, if I'm just perpetuating the things that I'm trying to get me and them to probably unlearn completely, you know? Um, yeah, I think that's a really, really important piece of it. Um, so like, what do we, you know, you said that you focus on like some body-based work and like, and like trust it and re, you know, an emphasis on autonomy and trusting yourself and learning to trust and kind of examining trust in general, you know, like what does trust look like and feel like, what are some things that, you also um, talk about in terms of like that are focused on and maybe recovering from spiritual abuse or, or unlearning or deconstructing that. Um, are there other focus points or do we hit them for, for, for the most part? I think we touched on a number of them. I think another yeah. piece is, uh, and maybe, maybe we spoke about this, but I think part of a big piece of this process is helping someone tap into their own narrative. Mm. Um, so that's narrative of, you know, their past experience, their present experience, and even what they hope it to be in the future. Um, and I think a lot of validation around what they, they're, they have internalized and how it's impacted them. And I do, I also talk a lot with clients around, uh, values and what is it about the past that actually has always been incongruent with who you are as a person mm. for, for me a lot of it is is holding lots and lots of space for these these inherent contradictions or inconsistencies that maybe people have never really had the space to voice um, as a way to create a narrative that's more congruent more authentic more totally. um, you know in line with that person's self yeah. Yeah. I was just going to share an another piece of this that I think kind of is, is, I'm seeing it more often at least talked about is just the idea of reclaiming spirituality and acknowledging that that can happen outside of religion as well. Um, and I also want to hold space to honor that for some people, that is a that is a boundary is like, actually, I don't think that I do want to reclaim spirituality. Mm. And so I think what Reclamation Collective, what we're seeking to do um, is to be able to hold space for people. And we say at the beginning of all of our support groups of all of our workshops, whether you're navigating a wave of bitterness or anger towards your religious culture of origin, or seeking to reclaim within a faith practice, community, ritual, et cetera, you're welcome and wanted here. Totally. Because 
we really don't want to be a place where or be holding space where people are feeling pressured to now take on a new intersection of spiritual identity. We're like, that's totally your path and you get to select what you are and are not open to. And if it's hard for you to stay in tune with a sense of safety, just say no. If, if you get freaked out when someone takes out a, a tarot deck, okay, you're allowed to just say no. Mm. Also, if you have something that kind of like flutters, you're like, oh, I'm curious. It's also okay to explore what is possible. Um, and so trying to like hold space for a lot of diversity of thought and experience and also trauma response. We, there's so much diversity of trauma response that we acknowledge, hey, these spaces may, you may hold a lot of your triggers, a lot of triggers in your body. Totally. When you show up in a space called a retreat, when you show up in a space called a support group, mm. because it might feel initially very reminiscent of some other spaces that you held, that you showed up in, where your spiritual expression or where your vulnerability was exploited. And, and I think that's how, you know, one of the questions I wanted to talk about was like, how do people learn to trust faith or spirituality or religion or however they identify with it? again. And I think that probably plays a huge part in it in just the allowance of curiosity as opposed to a rigidness that maybe is what they were accustomed to in the sense of, yeah, you know, you can say no, you can say yes, you can be unsure. Like that kind of helps to rebuild a sense of like, oh, I have choice in this, in this process. A few more questions. So in terms of sexuality, I imagine this is a really big touch point. How do people work through this stuff? You know, when you're kind of, when your sexuality is demonized or not spoken of in a positive way since the entire time, like how do, how do you reckon with that? I guess. It's a huge question. I I know. I feel like it's so large. And as I'm saying it, I'm like, this is, this is too big. (laughs) Well, I can just validate that we hold space every, probably every single client we, we hold yeah. space with or every support group. Folks do have an intersection of lived experience yes. where they did have to really like advocate for their access to any sexual expression, any gender expression outside of what they were told is the one way that you express yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do, I just, just want to honor too, that I think that purity culture can become its own sexual trauma. Mm. And so I've held space with folks who have shared, you know, Hey Kayla, I feel like I, I feel like I'm having trauma responses in sexual context, even with my loved one, my partner, um, who I trust, who I deeply respect, who I know would never, ever harm me. And I can't stay in tune with a sense of safety. I feel like I have like a sexual trauma history, but I don't remember anything happening. Mm. And number one, we can totally explore like dissociation. That's a piece, but also let's, could it just be that you received these toxic narratives that made it so hard for you to ever believe that you would have access to autonomy, that you'd have access to making a choice for yourself. Mm -hmm. That especially if you were socialized as a woman, that ever your pleasure would be a part of like what's considered success in that, in that expression and that connection. And so I think that we have to acknowledge that sometimes these 
narratives, these indoctrinated beliefs, narratives, ideologies, they are doing so much damage. They are becoming sexual traumas for people. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I love that of like purity culture in and of itself can be a form of trauma in terms of how we, cause we, you know, we take that on the messages that are way over there are still impacting us um, on macro and micro and everywhere in between, you know, levels. We refer to it as a grooming process, honestly. Like Mm. I was told by people at a young age that my body didn't belong to me. I didn't have to have like the people who have harmed me, who have assaulted me in my lifetime, didn't have to teach me that narrative. I came pre-groomed from two decades of these narratives being spoken into me, Um, which I also just want to say, I think that leaves people who grew up in these cultures and honestly, all genders, all genders growing up with this lack of access to comprehensive sex education, to lack of any comprehensive definition for what consent looks like, feels like, sounds like we are in danger. We are being harmed. We don't know how to call it what it is because we're also internalizing it as our sin that got us into a situation. And then, um, yeah, I think we all are literally in danger. Yeah. And so was that kind of the framework of like, if there was assault or there was unwanted touching that it was kind of like, oh, your sins brought that on in, in, in some shape or form? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's completely victim shaming and blaming. And I think, you know, our culture does that too. Like a a law was just overturned in Minnesota that like basically says that someone is is intoxicated that, you know, basically they're consenting. It's like, this is, it's so messed up. Um, Yeah. I I think women in, in fundamentalist communities, women are charged with a hundred percent responsibility for like maintaining the behavior of of other people men in particular in their spaces so if anything happens to you what were you wearing what were you doing were you flirting were you flirting so a hundred percent of it is like on the woman's experience and I think for someone you know like me who hasn't grown up in a very religious or you know a fundamentalist community I think you know, I have friends or people who identify as atheists. And I think sometimes it's framed as, you know, a problem that's way over there or that happens in, you know, within the Catholic church and abuse goes on there, you know, and, and it, and in reality, whether you identify as religious or not, or spiritual or not, or whatever, I mean, it speaks to everything that we talked about. It affects everyone. Even if you have no ties to any religious or spiritual community, it impacts our view and our worldview, because we're still part of a larger culture, you know, purity, rape culture, that religion or not, I know religion definitely impacts it, but it's, it, it is the culture, you know? Um, and there's no denying that. I mean, you, you just can't really deny that they play into and off of each other. To, to, to close, um, you know, what, I guess, what has helped you, you know, think or what the question is as I've written it what would you encourage people to think about in terms of their own experiences with religion and sexual uh, and or spirituality related to sexuality like what has helped you maybe navigate 
the shame that you inherited and versus, you know, maybe coming out the other side of that or, or, or going on the spectrum of that, um, what has helped you? I think as a first step for me, it's been, um, really nurturing a very wounded relationship that I've had with pleasure for most Mm. of my life. And I think it's being able to honor that it's okay for me to explore where I find pleasure, especially if I don't find it in the very limited boxed, well, box I was given for this is how you tap into pleasure. And that's for spirituality and for sexuality. Totally. Um, And so I think also just like reflecting on, do I have guilt and shame cycles getting triggered by any sensation of pleasure? That doesn't have to be sexual, right? Mm. But like a lot of us have a lot of healing to do in our relationship to pleasure, of course, in our relationship to body, but relationship to being able to experience something that is valuable and valid just because you are experiencing the pleasure. It's not for someone else's pleasure or someone else's approval. It's for you. And so I think for a lot of folks who have been raised in cultures where we are being told our entire existence is about seeking the pleasure, the approval of other people, particularly people with he, him pronouns, including God. (laughs) Um, I really think that it's really hard to be able to just like appreciate pleasure as valid and also like worth chasing. It's so fun mm. I totally agree it is so fun and um even even not related to sexuality yes. it any type of ple- like pleasure is you know pleasure in nature pleasure in writing pleasure in whatever you you know creativity I totally agree I mean the piece I would add to that for myself is is really realizing that I think this is connected to pleasure but more even um like a specific expression as far as my sexual expression is that I was raised to think that this was so binary and like one, basically intimacy is one act. It's, it's like, you know, penis, vagina, sex. Mm. And it's like intimacy is such a wide spectrum. So helping myself understand that, like, that's been a part of my reclamation is like, wow, I can experience intimacy and pleasure sexually and non-sexually. And it's this whole spectrum and all of it is good. All of it is available to me um, because I just think there's, it's, there's a lot of rigidity and shame mm. um, and there's so much like freedom and, and, and like variety out there that like, I want people to feel the space to explore what do you really, really like? Like we've said, sexually and and non-sexually, intimacy and pleasure all together. Thank you both so much. This was really, really, really incredible. Uh, Is there anything else that we, that you want to say like last words or something we didn't cover anything like that? Um, Good. I know. I know. I thank you so much. I, I I just, I got lost in, in the sauce a little bit. I was like, wow, this is so um, where can we, do, do you want to, you know, where can we find your work, um, your website, anything, you know, are your support groups, do they have openings? Like what, you know, anything, what's going on with that? 
Yeah, well, folks can find our support groups, uh, our registration on our website at reclamationcollective.com. We actually um, are just starting our spring season of support groups this um, in May. And then we actually will have another uh, a summer season as well coming out probably in June. So there'll be a, a short little overlap between the two seasons. But um, folks can always stay tuned with our social media too to kind of be informed when, uh, when those support groups are opening for registration. We have a number of deconstruction support groups, spiritual abuse support groups. Um, and also we tried to do also like um, subgroups, intersection of identity kind of specific groups as well. We have a processing group specifically for BIPOC. We have a processing group specifically for men. And um, some of our, uh, we have queer focused and we also have women's focused um, spiritual abuse support groups as well. And so, um, those will be available. Folks can actually register or sign up on our website to be informed when we have our next season of support groups opening for registration. So people will be kind of queued in. Those are all virtual and happen online. Um, yeah. Did you have and your Instagram that? is Reclamation Collective? Yep. Yeah. Kendra, do you have anything or no? The only thing I was going to say is we're, we're, constantly trying to add more support groups mm. so please keep looking back we have ones that we offer on occasion for therapists and and counselors um kayla's leading one for religious and faith leaders so we're we're constantly oh, wow. trying to expand that um so please you know keep checking back send us some information if you're like i really want you guys to offer this specific you know intersection of identity yeah. we are wanting to continue to expand that so thank you both so much I'm I guess that's all for now. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode, to this podcast. Please like the podcast, share the podcast with friends. It really helps for people to be able to find me. Uh, leave a review. That's even better. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at psych and the city BK. I am working on my Patreon. I'm working on so many things. Uh, but for now, that's where I'm at. And I put all of Kendra and Kayla's information in the show notes. Their Instagram is Reclamation Collective. They have so many good resources on their page. Their website is there and everything that you would ever need to know is in the show notes. And talk soon. <laughs>